0: Hello and welcome to Contour Podcasts. I'm Joshua Craker, the Chief Product Officer, and with me here is our CEO, Carl Wagner.
1: Hello, welcome everyone.
0: So it's been a busy year so far for Contour and we've been uh, enhancing our network uh, for our official live production launch today, as it were. Uh, And while we were in beta sort of earlier this year, we've conducted trials with many companies, including a pilot in Vietnam and Thailand that was in partnership with the Asian Development Bank and Standard Chartered Bank. So to discuss more about what this transaction in particular, and this partnership, means for trade in emerging Asia, we have a special guest joining us. Please welcome Stephen Beck, the Head of Trade and Supply Chain Finance at ADB. Hey, how are you? Very good, thanks. Thanks for joining us.
2: It's my pleasure. Thanks for the, uh, the invitation.
0: So I think the first topic that we're going to get uh, talking about today is, is definitely in the top of a lot of people's minds. Uh, I saw it was the number one listened to uh, session at the recent GTR Asia, and it's about the current state uh, in trade and, and more, maybe in, in more more in particular for this session in emerging markets uh, due to COVID-19. I don't know, Stephen, if you, you have any sort of um, experience with that earlier this year or any, anything you'd like to share with our audience about that in particular
2: sure um thanks josh uh well you know asian development bank comes out with um economic forecasts a couple of times a year um and what the bank is forecasting is for a contraction in uh developing asia this year of 0.7 percent and that's going to be the first time in six decades that we've seen a, a contraction in, in developing Asia, which is, uh, which, which is not great, uh, needless to say. Now, a notable notable exception is, um, is China, um, which is expected to grow this year still by 1.8%. And a couple of markets uh, where we're very active in our trade uh, business at Asian Development Bank, and um, you alluded to a transaction we did together, Josh. few weeks ago uh involving vietnam Um, we've also got uh uh, projections for bangladesh and vietnam both to be growing this year um bangladesh 5.2 percent and vietnam 1.8 percent, and that's off some pretty serious growth year on year for for last year so it's it's not great for developing asia uh, for this year but there are pockets that continue to be really resilient. Um, And, uh, you know, ADB is expecting emerging markets uh, in Asia to rebound at 6.8% next year. So, um, so lots of opportunities still, but you know, people are hurting big time. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are living day by day. um, And uh, of course, this, this makes it even more difficult for them. So um, it's uh, it, it, it's not easy. Interesting times.
0: So how do you think this is going to, you know, change the dynamic between trade, you know, between Asia and emerging markets in Asia in particular and the rest of the world uh, and those markets in Asia with the rest of Asia? Are we going to see more sort of nearshoring um, happening? Have you seen any trends regarding that? You know, we, we talked about some of those numbers. Uh, it did seem to me that while there, of course, um, staggering, you know, some of those things you mentioned, the first decline in six decades, uh, compared to some other parts of the world, the decline actually isn't um, as much. And uh, I'd be curious to see what your insights might be to that.
2: Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So the, the decline uh, uh, is less dramatic in uh, in developing Asia than it is in other parts of the world. Um, you guys know from, from working and living in Asia, it's such a dynamic uh, uh, region uh, with a, you know, huge, young, uh, energized population, the buzz, right, just uh, to to work in this region is uh, unparalleled. It's fantastic. Um, Well, I mean, before the the pandemic, we saw some very natural shifts, um, certainly from Asia to countries like Vietnam and Bangladesh, right, and uh, and, and Cambodia for uh, manufacturing and production of a whole Range of different uh, uh, different things, um, so I think we see that that trend continuing. Another trend that we we're going to see continue is the increase in intra-regional trade, as you've got you know Asian countries again. This the buzz, the energy growing at a clip that's unparalleled anywhere else in the world, um, and so you're going to see you know naturally. Uh, Asian countries continuing to increase their their trade with each other, so um, I, I think those kind of trends are are set to to continue.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. You think about it the the buzz and uh, the amount of young young people. I mean, I, I remember spending time probably about 20 years ago in, in in Vietnam and Bangladesh, and and it was just sort of the beginning of 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 export business and the apparel. Um, textile businesses and you could see that they were again they were taking uh, a lot of um, uh, uh, expertise and investment from other Asian countries but they were putting it into these um, you know the lesser developed countries and and tremendous potential and you saw what they were building and and, and doing and and uh, you know that was 20 years ago my, my my last startup and now now here again seeing the same thing and seeing a lot of um Real interest in in contour in 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 Asia, in Vietnam, in Bangladesh, in in Thailand, right? So some of these key markets where export trade um, is 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 really essential, um, and uh, and they also see the. I think they're more open to some of the digitalization um, opportunities, and uh, and and the banks and and corporates really want to. To take advantage of 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 being quicker faster uh you know being more competitive
0: so carl you know i think that's a it's a good point as well as Stephen, in terms of you know exports and trade being a great way to increase growth uh and to sort of take these declines and turn them into opportunities uh, In a lot of these markets i think most economists would agree that uh, that trade is is definitely going to be a major driver of this but what barriers um, do these companies face uh, if they want to start exporting, uh, if they need to start importing and exporting with some neighboring countries or even more far-flung destinations? Um, what sort of challenges are they facing on a normal basis if they're just entering the market or just wanting to expand uh, their trade networks?
2: Well, you know, Josh, I think it's interesting. I mean, we've seen a lot of rhetoric around uh, how difficult it is to trade, to trade They've been you know, lots of lots of talk of trade barriers, um, uh, and so on. But but what we're starting to see is that trade has proven to be a lot more resilient than I think a lot of people had had thought. Certainly at the beginning of the year, where people were writing off globalization and, and, and trade and so on, and and so we're seeing it rebound faster, certainly than after the uh, the global financial crisis. Um. Uh. You know, COVID hit and trade declined more um, than than since the Great Depression. Um, But uh, and and trade does remain below pre-pandemic levels. Um, But over half of that loss has been recovered uh, since June, or by June rather. Um, uh, You know, the new export orders are are growing in 14 of 38 economies. Um, Now, compared to, you know, just four economies in June, uh, China reported 9.5% growth in outbound uh, shipping in August compared to previous year. Um, You look at South Korea, uh, they too have, have, uh, uh, in September, the first 10 days of September, saw only a a 0.2% drop uh, in exports. Uh, off the same period last year, so um, you know, I think trade is a lot more resilient than than people had been uh, had been thinking. And as you say, Josh, I mean, it's uh, you know, if you look at Asia over the past few decades, trade has lifted millions and millions of people out of poverty, and it's going to be critical to 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 getting out of this pretty deep hole that we're in. So, um, yeah, sorry, I didn't talk a lot about barriers, but.
1: But I think what you know one of the barriers, again, if I look at it from 20 years ago to to now, is technology, right So technology is an enabler but right? it's t- I think it's taking one of the enablers to take away those barriers, right I mean before not everyone had the this was early days, not everyone had the internet right that internet thing um, but now you know everyone has internet or smartphones and and uh you know I think it it is a, a tremendous you know it's ubiquitous in not everywhere in these emerging countries, but a much higher you know, percentage of the population has it and that ab- enables them you know using technology to play on the same you know, the same level the same playing field as as the larger players right so smaller companies as long as they have an internet connection, you know they can get online and they can market their goods they can use they, they can use systems that are there are based on the internet that again they, they don't have to buy, software right they don't have to build buy so much infrastructure and and i think that's technology is going to continue to be an enabler for for smaller companies to to also be able to 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 compete i just wanted to to respond to something that carl said i completely agree on the
2: on the tech and and in terms of the barriers um i mean through this covid period of course we had physical barriers right i mean uh people couldn't get their workers uh to to you know in in fields or factories whatever they were in quarantine they didn't have trucks to move stuff or planes ports were shut down there are a lot of physical barriers right um physical barriers you're talking about you want to shift into trade finance uh, josh you know the physical barrier of just being able to move documents around in 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 trade um uh, you know i think you know we need to take some silver linings out of this horrible crisis and one of them, I think, uh, you know, to both both your points, is uh, the importance of digitization. I mean, we've known for some time that that trade finance and trade is ripe for disruption, um, and you know, this crisis has has shown us just how uh, vulnerable uh, global trade and supply chains are to this sort of antiquated. Uh, uh sort of infrastructure if you will or a sort of trade ecosystem um it, it's it's uh, and it's a dangerous thing right for all of us because it means that we may not be able to get critical goods to where where they're needed um so yeah the tech is is so there are barriers and 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 the tech is offering us a, a you know really important way of closing some of those resolving some of those impediments and, uh, and making, you know, supply chains and global trade more robust and secure.
0: Yeah, I think it's been really interesting to see that um, ships have been able to move goods, but if the documents can't move, then the goods can't be released. Uh, and, you know, this is obviously a symptom uh, of some trade finance processes that, that they are probably a bit overdue in terms of being uh, transformed, which is, of course, something that, that Carl and I have been working on together with you, Stephen. Um. So, so there's this number I wanted to to ask you about, which is I'm not sure where it came from. It's the WTO, ICC, or could even be uh, in collaboration with ADB. But it's this 1.5 trillion dollar hey, trade that's, finance. That's it's that's this global enough. number.
2: No, that's that's the, anyway. That's we we're, <laughs> were the first, if I may say so, to uh, <laughs> to to quantify the global trade finance gap. So yeah. uh, we I don't even know how old time. it is. Yeah. You, you, you're hurting me again, Josh. this is getting this is getting nasty. It's not that old. I think the first one that we put out uh, 2011 or 2012 is the first time we came out with our first sort of trade finance gaps, growth and job study.
0: Well, it was a great number and it's been widely used, I think. but I would just wanted to ask you, is it what's the direction of travel that we're in now? Here in 2020, you know coming on a rebound, obviously obviously this has been a major impact with with COVID. but if you take that out of the equation a little bit. Ah, uh, do we see that gap shrinking? Um, and 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 do, do we have a lot of hope for this future in terms of both the rebound after COVID, digitization, as you mentioned, and some of the other trends that we're seeing? Do we see that 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 gap getting smaller?
2: Well, I don't think so. Last time we uh, we did the the study was uh, last year, and the figure was uh, was 1.5 trillion again. No surprise, uh, the most underserved market segment is SMEs. And women-led uh, uh, firms fared even worse uh, in terms of getting their uh, their financing needs covered uh, on uh, on trade. Um, and no doubt, you know, this crisis has exacerbated that uh, that number. Right? I mean, financial institutions are uh, worried about non-performing loans and and what uh, what's going to happen in the next few weeks and months that uh, ahead. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, liquidity is tight and, and when it is tight, naturally you're going to have financial institutions looking after their biggest, uh, and, and, and longest standing sort of clients, not so much the SMEs. Right. So I think, I think that gap number, which, uh, you know, is, is probably exacerbated. There aren't any higher, hard numbers on that, but certainly anecdotally, we know that financial institutions have, have pulled back. Um, and you know, as we mentioned before, that's going to hit at our ability to to get ourselves out of this hole. Uh, trade-led growth is is very important, and all the jobs and you know development uh, that come from it. So we need to work to to close those gaps. And I think Asian Development Bank has stepped up. Right? I mean, multilateral development banks in times of crisis like this are are looked at to to step up and and uh, close some of these gaps and. This year so far, we've we've got over 50% increase in our transaction numbers. Um, So I think by the end of the year, we'll we'll do about five and a half billion dollars in in business. Um, And uh, uh, mostly in uh, our our biggest, we're in 21 markets, but our biggest markets are Vietnam, Bangladesh, Pakistan and Sri Lanka um and uh yeah so the business has grown a lot and we've been also doing some other stuff on the side i don't know if you've seen our supply chain tool you want to google adb supply chain maps we've been trying to map out each sort of component uh uh, part that's required to manufacture and distribute critical covid fighting goods like you know ppe and ventilators and stuff like that and and provide information on all the Component sort of companies that are involved in that whole process to identify impediments and bottlenecks and stuff. So, um, anyway, point is, you know, yeah, I think the crisis has uh, certainly exacerbated those gaps, and and we all need to to do what we can to try to fill those.
1: Yeah, I think from a bank perspective, right? and Josh and I have both been, we've all been bankers, I guess, before. But, um, you know, the banks, the banks, not the banks, don't want to help. It's that they don't obviously they're they're you know risk adverse they just don't have the tools to do it sometimes right and i think this is where you know i think you guys are are you know working some of your your projects and even the project we work together um is you know if the banks have the information to make these credit decisions then they can make the credit decisions now i think it's going to take some time to you know the the traditional risk management of a bank is is they're following the same models they followed for 20, 30 years. Um, they're following the same, well, I need to see this piece of paper sometimes, or I need to see this piece of information, this set of data. And uh, you know, I think that to really help things move in the future, A, going more digital, so you have less paper slowing things down and speed of transactions, but also really analyzing what data do you really need for for, for two things a does a buyer want to buy the goods like in, in terms of an l c and and does a bank want to finance it right either the buyer or seller you know putting the risk where the the risk is 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 leased and and uh, it'd be cheaper but it it's all comes down to information right and and the the banks and the risk officers being able to understand this information because a lot of it is out there it's not automated yet um and so I think banks have taken the the easiest sets of information that were available—they um, may not be the most efficient ones—but they've worked for. Talk about LCs; they've worked for hundreds of years. But I mean, you know, how do you? What do you really need to make a credit decision? And and you know, what's the data set that you need? When do you need it? You know, how could you do dynamic risk financing? I think some of this stuff—you know as more data becomes structured data in the future. Um, uh, that. You know, banks can can do, you know, dynamic risk financing. The financing, it's not the same risk throughout the whole transaction. As the goods are made, the risk should be going down and should be charged accordingly. But if you don't have those data feeds, it, it's hard to do. And I think this is really the exciting thing about looking at digitalization of, of supply chain and, and the whole trade process is, is better understanding where the risks are what where the data is that you need to reduce that risk and and then how to put some risk models onto it to 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 change how things are done i think that'll help in that trade finance you know that that gap as well
0: yeah so i, I think one of the things you know i don't want to be a bank apologist but banks will, will talk about a lot is you know the cost to serve right it, it costs the same thing to do a, a million dollar transaction for a large client as it does for a a ten thousand dollar transaction uh, for a small client. And if the cost of service is high, then banks are going to continue, you know, servicing those those larger transaction volumes, you know, at the expense and ignoring some of those lower ones because they, of course, the margins they make are lower. And this is this is a role that I think digitization can play in. But as you lower that that cost to serve, you sort of lower that that entry point in terms of when can you get access to these tools that can provide you working capital or risk mitigation. I think hopefully that's one thing that can help to sort of turn the tide, if you will, um, on that number. But, you know, maybe there's other things that can happen as well. You know, the uh, the, the entry of uh, alternative lenders, you know, guarantees from organizations like yourself, of course, are playing a role, but you know, anything else that uh, our listeners can do to help turn that tide, Stephen?
2: Yeah, Josh, you know, I, I, when, when a lot of this digitization uh, started, um, you know, a lot of us were really excited because I think we were very focused on exactly what you just said. You know, if we can just reduce the cost of, of delivering a loan to an SME, then it's gonna it's gonna have a real impact on closing the gap. But and, and then I think there there was a lot of IT and digitization that was introduced. Um, but I think a lot of that sort of reduced it did reduce the cost. Um, but i I don't think that it had the sort of desired effect at least sort of broadly in terms of closing gaps that we anticipated and I think the reason for that is because I mean certainly cost is one component part of solving you know the problem or closing the gap but I think to Carl's point you know what's what really really is going to be transformative is the information is that metadata um uh you know that that sort of transparency where uh you have a real window on what's going on and and you can you financial institutions will feel more comfortable um you know assuming these risks because they'll be able to really understand them in a in a really granular way through tech um that you know just wasn't wasn't possible before um, so, so yeah, so so the, I guess the question ultimately, Josh, is what you know, what, what can we all do? So you know, to, to move the agenda, the digitization agenda forward so that we do generate the kind of information that's going to meaningfully close gaps. So you know, I think well, one thing certainly is, uh, in order to to generate the sort of metadata, to do that kind of thing, um, we need I mean, we need, need more interoperability, right? So we need interoperability at a couple of different levels. On one level, we need it between all these sort of different platforms and stuff like like yours and, and others. And another level, uh, we need it throughout the trade ecosystem. And by that, I mean, between exporters and uh shipping and ports and customs and and logistics and warehousing and finance and and importers and if we can make that sort of you know the level of digitization interoperability between all of those sort of component parts of the trade ecosystem that would be totally transformative in terms of the sort of information that would become available Um, the the productivity would be you know unbelievable the cost the cost savings the efficiency that would be driven through the system to lower barriers to entry um, so i mean on, on on that front in terms of you know what we need are, are digital standards and protocols and that's critical to drive that interoperability at those two levels so with the international uh, chamber of commerce and the, the government of singapore we're creating something called the digital standards initiative to do exactly that, to create those protocols and standards to drive interoperability. So I think that's one piece.
0: It's a great thing that that's sort of happening, right? Is that uh, it's a common thing that people have talked about in the past with um, data being trapped in silos. And you know, how, how do we get that data out of silos and connect it uh, all the way through a transaction? So, you know, from the shipper to the exporter to the ports to the customs to the banks. Um, you know that that can of course give everyone a lot more confidence to know what is happening in the transaction which of course has levers in, into risk mitigation and also just make things a lot lot easier and, and can improve productivity so it's definitely something that we're keen to see happen and, and really uh really keen to work together you know with with you and the icc on this this dsi you know we, we've spoken with their 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 new hire in singapore and you know being based in singapore we're hoping that this can be something that can can lead to those standards being adopted, but it's going to take time. Um, you know, Carl, I'd like to get your impression too, because you've been speaking to a lot of the banks and, and corporates, you know, in these markets. Have you been surprised at all um, at the the interest, the appetite, these types of digital networks, uh, you know, in these markets, and maybe with this transaction in particular between SGG and uh, OPEC Plastics?
1: Yeah, well, it, it's, it's really interesting speaking to some banks in in, in Bangladesh last week. And they were so excited that, because they saw another transaction that was done on on, on Contro platform a few weeks ago, and they had four or five banks called up and said, we're really interested because, boy, if we could, by having an online system, we could have the same, we could offer our customers the same type of service that a large international bank, you know, be on the same platform that HSBC and Standard Chartered and ING and BNP all these big banks are on, right? That would be fantastic. Right, so they don't have to spend, you know, not only the banks but also the corporates don't have to spend a lot of money to to for this infrastructure, right? Being being on the internet, being being accessible, you um, know, is is a great opportunity for them to to service their customers better. Um, I think that that's definitely one piece of it. The other piece of it, standards, is one thing, but also we are in a world with the geopolitical challenges are growing. And I think the other component of this is is decentralized ledgers. I think the fact is that if anyone wants to build a, you can have global standards, but if if anyone wants to build a centralized database of all the bank information, all our corporate information for multiple countries, all sitting in whatever country it is, it's going to be very difficult I mean those days are, are are gone and so I think that you know the the opportunity for you know distributed ledger um, where data can be kept at 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 the source so the the either the corporates or the banks they can keep it within themselves um, they can keep it in their country in a cloud in their country and you know, with all the geopolitical, you know, I don't want my data sitting in that country or this country. Distributed ledger is an opportunity for you know the systems to create a um, a, a a platform, a way of moving that information between the players without having a central database, and that's that's, that's sort of the I think the last piece of the puzzle. That you know, we've been looking for. I've been looking doing this for for twenty years, and and uh, you know, without distributed ledger, centralized database is really challenging. No one wants their data to be somewhere else, and now even more so in these days of trade wars and stuff like that. So I think it's a it's a great opportunity now to to use this new technology along with the standards to to roll things out.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking about that, Carl. It's almost like we need infrastructure people talk about building infrastructure a lot to help support trade and that could be physical infrastructure, you know, ports and things like that. But, you know, I think digital infrastructure is also required. So, you know, having standards without infrastructure doesn't help us and having infrastructure without standards also doesn't help you. Imagine trying to build a railway system around the world and no one talked to each other about what gauge the rail was going to be. So, you know, it's really this combination of two things and, you know, the um, the real increase in speed of development of infrastructure with the advent of decentralized technologies is really good to see because, you know, like you said, it's not something any one country can build, uh, you know, by themselves. It's not something any one bank can build by themselves. It has to be built, you know, through collaboration. So, so hopefully this does, uh, you know, lead to that infrastructure being built, and then together with those standards, Stephen, we can, uh, we can start to to push this along.
2: Yeah, Josh, I, I think I think you think of the same term actually that that we need to put in place the infrastructure so that the digital agenda really can move forward, and and the, the standards and protocols is is one is a leg of it. Um, another leg, I think, is um, uh, countries adapting the um, unsatral sort of model laws on on uh, you know digitization, right? So, as you guys know. And there are countries that, that don't even recognize a digital bill of lading or something as basic as that. And without that infrastructure, that sort of legislative infrastructure, there's only so far we can go. So that's that's a second piece. And I think, you know, banks like ours that are between public and private have, a, have an important role to, to play in encouraging governments to uh, to adapt those laws. Um, And then, you know, another piece of the infrastructure, I think is, uh, and this relates very much to the the metadata we were talking about before, is these uh, legal entity identifier, which I think you guys have been promoting as well, right? Um, I mean, if you've got metadata that you think of it like an ocean and an SME, like a grain of sand in that ocean, how are you going to identify that grain of sand without a unique global identifier, right? So I think that's another piece of that infrastructure
0: that, uh, Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's, it's a great example, right? Identity has been something that matters so much when you have that infrastructure in terms of who are you on that network? Uh, You know, where where we have certain standards today in the world, LEI I think is one of the leading one for corporates. And I think we just need more adoption of it. Uh, I think the same thing, as you mentioned, you know, countries who haven't yet adopted or uh, allowed digital infrastructure like a electronic bill of lading yet. Um, you know, we need that adoption um, of these standards. I think it can really push this along further. And I, I think that's sort of the accelerant maybe that 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 we sort of need to get this across the line. Um, you know, one of the things about what ink signatures is also an interesting point. Uh, we often ask uh corporates, you know, what what why do you ask for the original documents in a letter of credit? You know, when you put in that requirement for an original signed invoice, you know that that instantly creates the need for paper, and if you don't need that to clear customs or if you don't need that to prove that there's an invoice, you know then don't ask for it. You know I think even just changing behaviors, you know, forgetting about legal changes, you know, can also be a big role here because, as we know, people do what they've always done, uh, so I think that can be a big piece of this as well.
1: I think when and hopefully you know, COVID has, has, has opened that door. I think people, I heard someone say that, you know, digitalization people sort of had one foot in, but now they have both feet in now because COVID's made them realize that if I not having that piece of paper, I can't get to the office. I can't stamp that thing. You know, you business can't go on. And I think it's hopefully corporates and, but definitely, uh, you know, uh, regulators as well and and governments are are seeing this as an opportunity to 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 move forward. I was talking to one of our partners, and they said that they did certificate of origins, and they did an average of six new countries a year. And in like three months, they had sixty countries join up. Right, so that acceleration. Um, so, I mean, hopefully, the the you know one of the one of the advantages of of, of you know, this terrible situation is that you know people see digitalization as a way to to be more efficient and and get out of some of those paradigms that you have to be in the office, you need that piece of paper, and why? Well, it's always been that way. Well, let's rethink that. And I think I think that's from from corporates as well as as regulators. You know, hopefully there's there's a there's an opportunity here, and I think we've seen a lot of it happen already. But hopefully it doesn't doesn't slow down. Right? It was sort of a a panic maybe three or four months ago, and hopefully that that impetus uh, can can keep on going um, because uh, it's going to move things so much quicker than it has in in a long time.
2: Yeah, and I, I like those uh, those phrases that people now are trying to coin. You know, that uh, build back better or you know stuff like that. I mean, we really do need to I think think that way, right? And 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 take uh, uh, what we can that's good out of out of this terrible situation. And all you know, a lot, a lot of what's great about digitization and, and can can solve problems um, uh, has been accelerated at lightning speed over the past five, six months. This thing's been going on, and if we can keep even you know, uh, you know, just a, a portion of that kind of momentum, as you say, Carl. I mean, it's it's just it's a, it's amazing what we'll be able to do um, in, a, in a in a pretty short period of time and transformative stuff. I really, th- I
0: really think so. So let's get into a little bit of the, the details of how this is actually going to, to work. I think one of the reasons that a lot of technology initiatives have had sort of limited success, not just in emerging markets, but everywhere, has been, there's been a very high cost of entry. Uh, and without huge network effects, sometimes the benefits don't outweigh those costs and therefore you don't have value. So, you know, how is this time different? You know, Carl, I'd love to get your input as well. And Stephen, you know, h- how do we make sure that the infrastructure that we're building is going to deliver value in terms of the cost of it uh, is going to be less than the value that it creates? Um, you know, is, is decentralized technology helping in this regard? Um, you know, cloud, is this helping? How, how are we getting the cost down so that we can really support everyone uh, in these networks and that the... The benefits that will will outweigh them, and then we can start to see the mass adoption that will really drive this change that we're all seeking.
1: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's a good question. It, again, if you're trying to do something, and and I've been in in the blockchain business now for I guess about six years now, which is you know ages in in, in blockchain. And in the old days, oh, we want to put it on distributed ledger blockchain. Why? Well, because we want to put it on blockchain. Well, is there a reason to do it? Well we want to put it, it'll be better. Why? If a centralized database works well in certain situations, you don't want to put on distributed ledger. It's more expensive, right? Let's be honest. But in cases where you have multiple jurisdictions, you have different laws, you have different locations, um, mutualizing a system where you have a distributed ledger system mutualizing those costs is a tremendous advantage because no one has to build one thing. It's, it's all about collaboration. Um, you look at how we started out with the eight banks, um, that are, uh, that, that started and we're very proactive in saying, we don't want to build a system just for the eight of us to beat everyone. Right. And we have some of the biggest banks in the world, you know, we're we're investors in our system. I mean, HSB, Stanchart, ING, Citi, whatever. I mean, BNP, they are very interested in, 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 uh, you know, investing in the system, but it wasn't just for them. They realized the benefit was a bigger ecosystem sharing it and collaboration. And and they're one of the, you know, that's why we've gone from now we have 20 banks on the system. Many were introduced by our original investors because that kind of collaboration, um, mutualization of, of those databases and those database costs that comes with distributed ledger, um, will, will allow big and small to benefit from it. It's not just the big players. So I think, again, it's, it's a little bit of an opportunity there that uh, we don't want to miss.
0: Yeah, so Stephen, I was just curious to know if, with the banks that you work with as well, are they seeing this as an investment, right? Because, of course, any technology, there is a cost to it. Um, you know, Carl made an interesting point earlier with the Bangladeshi banks he was talking to, saying that, you know, for a relatively small investment, they can get the same platform as as a major global bank and maybe that that's an interesting way of looking at at technology, right? Rather than having to develop it yourself, you know, by partnering in a solution, um, does that change the economics, but it's still an investment. So, you know, are, are these banks and all these corporates open to saying, we know this is going to take time to build the network. We know the benefits coming, but it might come in time. You know, is there an appetite for that investment or is there more of a wait and see attitude?
2: Well, um, Well, there seems to be an appetite otherwise i guess they they, you know they wouldn't be doing it um but you know just narrowly from asian development bank's perspective so you know that i mean ultimately we exist to you know improve people's lives and 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 part of that is is closing gaps right so how we close gaps um of course i'm focused on trade and supply chain and the benefits of the you know the jobs that creates and so on and so forth um uh you know what we aim to do is we don't want to displace the private sector. We want to enhance their capacity to operate in these spaces so that they can close more gaps. Right? So we provide guarantees and loans to banks to support trade, obviously focused on our developing countries. Right. Um, and what we see is that, you know, some of our, our clients, uh, who are some of your member banks, right. Our clients, are increasingly interested in using platforms like yours um, because you know obviously they they see efficiencies for themselves and for their clients Um, and you know given that that's the case you know we want to be there if we're not there to help you know allay some of the risks in some of these markets where you know for whatever reasons they they need our support. Uh, if we're not there, then you know the concern is that that a lot of these banks that do want to join platforms like Contour, you know they they may end up transacting with all sorts of parties, but not so much in you know countries that are of concern to us like Bangladesh and Pakistan and and so on and so forth. So um, so we think it's important to be there. Um, you know because because the banks think it's important to be there so i i think you know I, I think we're moving into a different phase now where and you know maybe the existence of you guys sort of demonstrates that right i mean you guys came out of r3 correct me if i'm wrong carl where you know a bunch of banks got together to do some experimentation on this stuff right and now you're sort of moving beyond the experimentation stage into um you know, actually uh, mainstreaming some of this stuff. Um, and I guess that's that's where Contra, why Contra was created, right? So I think it's an interesting, you know, we are moving into a different phase now where, where you know, people do want to make the investment uh, uh, and...
0: Uh, yeah, it certainly feels that way that we're entering the, this new phase. And, you know, as today, our, our production launch day, I guess, reflects that. Um, so, so maybe any, any, any closing words, uh, Carl, and then Stephen as well before we uh, say sayonara on this this podcast.
1: I mean, I just say it 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 is you know interesting to see, and we look at emerging markets and uh, being able. I think it's between COVID, um, between uh, technology being a little bit more ubiquitous. Uh, I, I think it's a tremendous opportunity for SMEs, small banks, to be able to participate in the global economy. I think it's probably the, the, the opportunities are much bigger now than, than ever before. I don't know how much it's going to change the $1.5 that still seems to be sticking over, over the last 8, 10 years. But uh, I think this is a tremendous opportunity to make some progress and, and, and platforms and partnering um, collaboration, uh, I think, is 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 the real way to do it um, because no one can do it by themselves. And if you do it by yourselves, you're always going to have, you know, one side of you're always thinking of, of one side of the balance sheet, your your own side, right? Collaboration, you know, I think, and everyone wants to help these SMEs. Everyone wants wants to do it, but to do it, one bank to do it by themselves is is is, is difficult. But a group of banks and collaboration you know, and, of course, development banks, you know, like ADB and others, you know, are sitting with, with one foot in each side um, are an important piece of it. But I think it's it's a tremendous opportunity now to take advantage of. And I think, as, as Steve, you said, it'd be terrible if we lost, lost that momentum. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely, Carl. And your your point on collaboration, I mean, you think about it, that trade ecosystem. I mean, I think you've got at least eight parties involved in in. In an, in an import slash export transaction, right? So, how do you and spanning different jurisdictions and so on, of course. So, how do you how do you really make that work better without collaboration? That's just not possible. Um, and and that's I guess that's part of the fun, right? Part of the challenge, part of the fun. But um, but you know, trade is critical to uh, to growth, to development. Global trade is not dead, despite a lot of the uh, the rhetoric. Um, Comparative advantage and market forces are going to to make sure of that. Um, And uh, uh, we've got to remove as many impediments and barriers to trade as we can to see as much of that kind of growth as we possibly can. So it has as much of of an impact, good impact as it possibly can. And, you know, digitization is going to be an important, important part of that. And it's great that you guys are, are doing your bit in that whole process. And as you as you say, Carl, uh, let's let's take what good we can from this this tragedy and uh, and keep the momentum going. So uh, thanks
1: very much for uh, for this opportunity, guys. Trade finance is a team sport, right? We got together.
0: Okay, well, I think that's all the time we have for for this episode. I just want to to thank you, Steve, uh, for the great insights and for speaking with us. Uh, Again, that was Stephen Beck, the Head of Trade and Supply Chain Finance at Asia Development Bank, and of course, our very own CEO, Carl Wagner. We will be rolling out more podcasts in the coming weeks, so please check our website for the latest episodes. The URL is contour.network. Contour is C-O-N-T-O-U-R.network. Of course, you can always subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts on Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as Spotify. If there are any other topics you want us to cover in the future, uh, please do email your suggestions to contact at contour.network. Uh, thank you very much for listening in. Until next time, I'm Joshua Kraker signing off.